Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year Polygamy Podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay. And tonight I have a very unique guest, Barack Gazalem Ali. Can you say hello? Hola. Okay, Barack, that's quite that's quite the name. It's a name that some people might be familiar with. So uh, why don't you introduce who you are and where you got this name, Barack Gazalem Ali? Yeah, Barack Gazalem Ali is actually a title, and that's a title that members of the Order of Amen take. So anybody that's a prophet, seer, revelator within the Order of Amen goes by that title, Barack Gazalem Ali. And where else do we find that name? Oh, it's in, you know, Gazalem's in the Book of Mormon. It's that he's a seer, or it it's the name of a seer and it's also um, code names that are in the Doctrine and Covenants. Yeah and I didn't realize I guess I had never paid attention that Joseph Smith and early church members in the early versions of the Doctrine and Covenants used code names and there are two for Joseph Smith well there are several but one of them was Barak and Gazalem Ali which was for Joseph Smith and as you said meant seer and revelator. Yeah, so Barak Ali, and then there was Gazalem, and then he went by um, Enoch as well sometimes. Okay, and so Enoch, or the Order of Enoch, since I'm a Utah, and that's how we say Enoch, um, <laughs> that sometimes uh, some scholars speculate that Joseph Smith used these names to sort of skirt away from any legal issues arising with the United Order or the Order of Enoch. Does that sound yeah, right? I, I think that, that, that that's true in the sense of the, with the Doctrine and Covenants, but at the same time, um, there's things to point to what people's white stones were or what maybe their um, endowment type of names. And so I think there was maybe a deeper meaning for those titles and names as well. And it's also just to kind of mysticize the whole thing, you know? Well, that's what I wanted to talk to you about because uh, I have met a lot of prophets in doing this work, um, but you are certainly unique. So for most people that are going to be listening, they're going to be hearing the audio, but for the Patreon subscribers, they can see the video and you're wearing a mask. Do you want to talk about why you're wearing a mask? Oh, I think it's just mostly comes from endowment type of stuff where um, we're told never to reveal the second token of the Aaronic priesthood. And so, okay. <laughs> well, I already mentioned prophet. Um, I first met you at Sunstone. Uh, you had come in with some beautiful plates that you had made. Were they, what were they? Bronze, copper? What? Yeah, they're the copper plates. Copper plates. And um, we sat down and you showed me some of your artwork and you explained that you're for, from the Latter-day Church of, uh, sorry, the Latter-day Order of Amun. So tell yes. us, what what is that? Well, Amun is the original name or title of our heavenly parent. And um, it's actually spelled A-W-M-A-N. Or sometimes in later revelations, or at least through once it went into print, was A-H-M-A-N. But Amen is a heavenly parent, and then the Order of Amen, it's really just tracing it all the way back to the original Church of Christ, were precessors to the Church of Christ. So, there's Order of Amen, and Church of Christ, and 
Church of Jesus Christ, then Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints or whatever, you know. So it's really just stems back to, we stem to the magical guilds um, that Joseph Smith was involved in. And we don't really have, we don't really come from the religious stem of what became, you know, LDS or any of the different factions that Joseph Smith started. So this is why you are unique, because, of course, this podcast deals with a lot of different branches of Mormonism, of which you are one. But like you said, you don't necessarily take their religious tenets. You take more of the magical tenets. And we were talking earlier, and you said that you guys trace sort of your beliefs all the way back to Sally Chase. Uh, Tell us. Go ahead. Oh, no, I was just going to agree with you. (laughs) Well, tell us who Sally Chase is. Um, Those who are hardcore into the history are going to know, but give a refresher for those who don't know. Yeah, so on a historical basis, Sally Chase was a seer that lived in the, I guess it was the Palmyra, New York area where Joseph Smith lived. And the Chase family was actually involved with the Smith family with their the magical aspects of it, treasure seeking, um, scrying with seer stones and things like that. In fact, when Joseph Smith was a really young boy, um, Alvin Smith was actually involved with Willard Chase and that family doing treasure seeking before Joseph Smith even got involved with it. But when he was 13, 14 years old, um, he knew about Sally Chase and that she was a seer and a scryer, and she would look into this green stone or green glass it's a bluish green glass supposedly and he actually walked miles and miles and miles to track her down just so he could look in within her stone and see if he was a scryer as well um, he did look into that stone and um, supposedly it told him where to find his white stone and other seer stones which we can go into too but the main seer stone that the LDS just came out with a year or two back and publicized in their um, Joseph Smith papers and in the Enzyme, the little brown stone. That stone is actually a Chase family seer stone, and that stone was found by Willard Chase. And um, they say they were digging a well. Um, but, you know, you dig for all kinds of stuff. <laughs> They're most likely probably dig- digging for treasure. And Willard found that stone and Joseph Smith snatched it out of his hand and said, oh, let me see that, threw it into his hat and started, you know, seeing things. So that's where it all started. That's the main stone that actually they used to translate the Book of Mormon. So as far as I'm aware, Sally, Sally Chase sort of drops off the historical record. Um, I think Dan Vogel has some information on a possible death date for her, I think like in the 1870s or 80s. Uh, but how, so if you guys follow Sally Chase, how do you, do you just revert back to some of her practices or do you know people as part of her heritage or ancestry? How does that work? Yeah. So they're my cousins. I'm related to that family. Um, also through the Chases that joined the LDS, like Isaac Chase was my uncle, his brother, Abner Chase. Um, Isaac Chase had the um, Liberty Park down there in the mill. There's also like the historic um, uh, folk art museum that his home has become down there at Liberty Park. And so that family is all related um, and is involved both in L- the LDS. So that's kind of where my stem comes through with the Chase family. But 
Um, back to your question with Sally Chase, um, just that. I was just wondering if there's like a direct line because, you know, some people who have break off factions of in Mormonism ha- like trace it back directly to so-and-so. So I was wondering if yeah, there's so, a bloodline or how that works. Yeah, it, it's a it's an ancestral line. But at the same time, Sally, Sally Chase when we're lo- when we're talking about this and looking back at it it's interesting because with these magical guilds there there's a there's a mythology of trying to obtain the word or trying to obtain the alchemical gold through the philosopher's stone and through seer stones and these families um especially Sally Chase's family all the way up to where Joseph Smith was even hiding the plates in a bar barn she was searching through her seer stone with these other magical guilds trying to achieve the gold plates and when you go back and look at historical events like where they're talking about how joseph smith and his family are in their house and the mobs are outside trying to get the gold plates and they're saying we're gonna come in there joe and get the plates from you and he starts saying okay, family, get your pots and pans and start making a ruckus and making a lot of noise. And they all start making a lot of noise. And the mob is like, oh my gosh, Joe has the whole army in there. Let's get out of here. That was my, that was my family. Those are the chases that were like trying to achieve or get the golden plates. So we were all trying to get a hold of the word or whatever, you know. We'd see it as a mystical um, metaphorical obtainment of something like what the Book of Mormon is is an apocryphal concept that Joseph Smith took out of what the original concept of the golden plates are to obtain you know the the secret or the word or whatever the logos. Okay, so I want to get into that in just a minute, but I've kind of jumped ahead on this little outline. So first, let's back up. Let's talk about who you are. Tell us about your upbringing and your connection to Mormonism in general, and then we'll talk about how you got connected to the Order of Amun. Okay, cool. Yeah, I just think Mormonism's the best and greatest and coolest thing out there. Scientology, Masonry, the Starship Galactica, none of that has anything on us. Mormonism's just like really, like that's some really crazy stuff and people just don't know about it, right? Yeah. It's like the, the LDS has taken all the fun out of it. And I think that's why a lot of people are leaving. Um, we just want the LDS to know that there's other alternatives out there and they don't have the monopoly on Mormonism. In fact, we don't even consider them Mormons, but we'll go into that too. <laughs> anyway. Yeah, I'm very interested in that. I was born in the covenant within the LDS or the Brighamite. And my genealogy goes back seven, eight generations. Um, like, I'm related to Lucy Mack Smith and Joe, like Joseph Smith. Like a lot of people are probably through different descendants. And um, it's interesting because John, I don't know if you know who John Howland is. He was one of the um, guys on the Mayflower that when they were coming over to America, the ship just started to toss and turn and there was a big storm 
and he was getting seasick. So he went up on deck and got tossed overboard. And so he's out in the middle of the ocean ready to drown. And luckily there's a rope that's flying off the cells and he's able to grab onto that thing. They pull him aboard with a hook and he survives the whole ordeal. The interesting thing is that there are millions and millions of descendants that come from this guy. And um, none of any of this would have ever happened if he would have drowned. And Joseph Smith is one of those descendants. I'm a descendant. George W. Bush is a descendant. The Baldwin brothers are descendants. Um, Sarah Palin's a descendant. Um, Warren Buffett, I think, is a descendant. And so you just think if one thing was out of line and that guy would have drowned, all these millions of people and none of this would have happened. Mormonism wouldn't have happened. Who knows what Kuwait and all that with George W. would have happened. That's that's funny because I am looking up his his ancestry right now. And, and you're right. There's a whole society for his famous descendants, Maude Adams, Alec Baldwin, um, <laughs> the Bushes. You're- you might be related. I mean, he has. I, you know what, Joseph Smith Jr. There he is. Um, I know that we have an ancestor on the Mayflower, and it's probably this guy. So we're kin. Yeah! Yay! See, we just really encourage everybody to do their ancestry because you can find out so many crazy things, and that that, that whole historical and ancestral background is what just really establishes my place within the order and things. But, um. Just going back to the ancestry type of thing, you know, Desdemona Fulmer, supposedly Joseph Smith's wife, um, was my grandpa's sister. So she's an aunt. Um, Both of her brothers, David and um, John Solomon Fulmer, were part of the Council of the Fifty. I have Bathsheba Bigler. Her brother, Jacob G. Bigler, she was married to George Albert Smith. Um, she, she's my aunt. My grandpa, J- Jacob G. Bigler, actually had stewardship of the mummies from the Pearl of Great Price and took them from Quincy to Commerce to get them to Nauvoo. Um, I have David Norton, who was friends with Porter Rockwell. Porter Rockwell kicked in the door of the expositor. David Norton set it on fire, which eventually got Joseph Smith put in Carthage and killed him. So you start to trace this stuff back and think, you know, Mormonism wouldn't have ever happened if they, if Joseph Smith hadn't stole this seer stone from Willard Chase or hadn't tracked down Sally Chase to look in her seer stone. If David Norton hadn't helped burn down the expositor along with 200 other people, (laughs) then... (laughs) Then, more than Joseph Smith wouldn't have gotten killed or whatever. So there's just so many scenarios when it comes down to these things that it's like, well, we're all a part of it, and you know, Mormonism, people that at least have family ancestry with it are an integral part of it. That's why with with you and um, talking about with women and and their role within. Um, Mormonism, it's just like that stuff just couldn't have or, or wouldn't have happened if it weren't for these people. So yeah, so as, as a kid growing up LDS, did you talk about these family histories? Did you know who Sally Chase was and all of, all of these sort of mystical elements? Oh, to a point. I, know, I mean, we knew that they call her Bashibi in our family. Um, it's more of an endearment instead of 
Bathsheba family passes it on as Bathsheba. Um, also, like a Sama um, Lyman, they called him a Sammy. They were all friends and stuff. But um, yeah, we we knew that Bathsheba was part of the original um, Relief Society. Um, so was Desdemona Fuller. Um, my my sisters, any time they went to the into a bishop's interview, they would ask the bishop. They'd say, "Hey, when are the women? When are women going to have the priesthood?" Because they just always felt a connection to that. And you know, we I don't I remember my mom talking about things and saying how the women are, did have the priesthood at one point or whatever. You know. <laughs> And they really did. But the, the, that original Relief Society, they were given all the same priesthood powers and things. So stuff like that was passed down. There, there's other things that I, I have just found through historical and ancestral studies and things like that. So did you have like a testimony in like the typical LDS Wasatch Front upbringing? Oh, yeah, but I ever since I was even four years old, I remember being in sunbeams and just really taking things with a grain of salt or feeling like I had one up on what they were trying to tell us. Like we were supposed to collect little baby food, get baby food jars and cut a little notch in the top of it. And they said, oh, you're doing this so that you can save for your mission. And when they told us that a mission was that you were supposed to go away from your family and friends for two years and teach people the gospel and things, I just had a really feeling inside that, and I'd heard it before that we're all on missions and we're on an eternal mission. And I was like, well, why go away for two years when you're just always on a mission? So for like my testimony was like, yeah, I'm on my mission. I'm here to, to um, spread Mormonism and that was just like a major, major goal of mine all through my life. And I remember thinking also at that age that, okay, well, it's probably different for women, but with men, it's like, you're going to become a deacon and then you're going to become a teacher. And then you have all these initiata- initiations. And I remember thinking at that age, five years old, okay, well, then you become the bishop and then you become a <laughs> A stake president and then you know a quorum of the 12 and then you become the prophet and i just thought that was just always the goal so when it comes down to like the king Follett and things like that and then eternal progression of like actually becoming a god or something and her medical type of things like that i just really i don't know just really felt like i had a connection to those type of things so i guess that's where my testimony comes from if that's my so it does sound like you had i mean the typical experience you just had maybe an atypical reaction to it i mean i want to walk into how we get to where you are now. So is there anything growing up that really shaped you or made you question the church or like, what was that like as a teenager and things like that? I think a big part of it was in the eighties and up through the nineties, just to kind of date where we're at here. I could see a lot of changes happening and a lot of it, I feel and really think we're related to um, Mark Hoffman and different things like that, where the the LDS church seemed to really clamp down on things that I had always grown up and embraced. 
And that's when it became the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, where they blew up the name. They were like, okay, we're not really going to concentrate on Joseph Smith or the early prophets anymore. It's Jesus Christ. It's the Book of Mormon. It's the Bible, Doctrine and Covenants. That's all you need, and that's all you need to stand on. And also, with, luckily, I was out before, before this, but with Gordon B. Hinckley and things, saying that, that they weren't Mormon, that they were LDS, and all of those things, it was just like, yeah, I don't know. It, I just got really turned off by all of that, and that's when the historical narrative kind of went away, and they didn't want to talk about those magical kind of things anymore. So how did you discover the magical roots as an LDS kid growing up? Um, how did you, was it like when Quinn's research came out, when when did you first discover it? Oh, uh, no, I mean, my family had always talked about the seer stones and different things like that. I don't, I don't think that was ever like a, a secret with us for some reason, but we knew that it wasn't mainstream LDS and that but I, th- I think the first aha moment was really the magical aspect was more going to the lighthouse ministry and tracking down Sandra Tanner and things and you have to think this was the 90s and things had really gone lukewarm or even cold on this type of stuff I remember going into San- Sandra's and and this is when her husband was still alive and things and you could always kind of see him lurking up in the background and just buying like stacks of books and her just saying like, oh, it's the, the last of the true collectors or something like that. And um, it really was just getting really sad. And then, you know, now with stuff like Sunstone, the way it, it is and things, it really seems like um, almost Mormon Comic-Con or something where Sandra Tanner's walking down and she's like a celebrity, you know, people are like, whoa, Sandra Tanner. <laughs> And so things have really changed. But yeah, just in the 80s and 90s, um, you know, I became an elder. I was supposed to go through the the temple, but I was made elders quorum teacher, but I didn't want to go on a mission and I didn't I didn't want to go through the temple or anything. And um, it was weird to teach elders quorum and a bunch of returned missionaries and not even be a had ever gone on a mission myself, but my bishop just said he I knew more about Mormonism than most returned missionaries and made me missionary teacher of the elders quorum. And it was really weird because they'd, you know, I'd go to singles wards and elders quorum and they'd start talking about how there were all these changes and the endowment and things. And I didn't have any idea what they were even talking about. So it really took going and finding the um, evolution of the, the temple ceremony and endowment over at um, Sandra Tanner's and stuff to really even put that type of thing into, you know, realize what's really going on. But So in, really... in a traditional way, you had sort of the stereotypical faith crisis. You had questions. You started seeking. You end up at Lighthouse Ministries. And what do you find there that shifts things for you? Oh yeah, so yeah, they they had a book on magic that had all the parchments and things in there, and I'd already been looking in, in at that point. You know, we'd left church and go up to the canyon and 
smoke cigars and think, wow, I'm way closer to God doing this. And then to find out that's the exact thing that Joseph Smith was doing and telling his mom, you know, I can learn more going up into the woods in two hours than two years at church or whatever the quote is. I don't know. <laughs> um, but I, you know, I just, I just think a lot of it too is, um, I just started having some of my own mystical experiences that, that were a lot stronger and more powerful than what the LDS said was available. But I always have really had a strong conviction that I'm Mormon through and through, you know? <laughs> yeah, I definitely uh, relate to that. So, so you lose your faith in the LDS and, uh, and do you just sort of wander in the wilderness for a while? How do you, how do you end up? With I don't the- really see it as losing faith in the LDS. I don't know if I ever really had faith in the LDS per se, like the authority type of thing. I mean, I remember Kim- having a lot of respect for Kimball as a little kid, um, but Star Wars was really popular and he looked like Yoda and we really had a real connection with him. Like, oh, here's this this guy that really know, knows what the truth is and things. And then, but being a little kid, you don't really understand it in the same way. And I just always felt like there, there's nothing wrong with trying to learn and trying to expand your, expand your knowledge. And if that does waver your faith in, in something, then it wasn't true to start with. You changed and I guess what I'm asking then is throughout your like young adult life, are you joining any religions? Are you going to church at all? No, you know, that's the nice thing about being part of the only true church is, you know, if you do decide that it's not the only true church, you don't really search out for other things. I did get, I did really get into studying comparative religion um, ufology, magic, and those type of things. But at the same time, um, it wasn't because I was trying to search for some type of truth or anything. I just became an instant skeptic of all of it. And that's when I realized that what Joseph Smith was doing um, with the Book of Mormon and things, uh, those are just apocryphal works. And he even said that they were apocryphal works. And that something like the Book of Mormon is the is the most true, correct book ever. And the reason I can say that is because it's the most false book ever. And I really think that he 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 stepped back and thought, what's the most outlandish, craziest story I can come up with? And if people believe this, they'll believe anything. And that stems all the way back to when he found Martin Harris in the street and said. I'll give, um, I was told by God that the first man to give me 50, the first, the first honest man to give me $50, you know, that story. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Christopher Smith talked about it at Sunstone where Joseph Smith found ways to have his friends give him money <laughs> by challenging yeah. their integrity and then they would give him money. Yeah. And it's the same thing with the, with the Book of Mormon. It is the most true book ever, like, especially if, it's just exposing how false religion is. And that, that was the whole goal of Joseph Smith, I think, was to say no church is true and not to join any of the churches. And that, those kind of concepts step back, stem back to 
um, magic and those type of things. I mean, I think a real true magician is just going to expose trickery. You look at everyone from Houdini to even modern stage magicians like Penn and Teller are there to expose this kind of stuff and to, to show, to exploit it. I think that was Joseph Smith's original goal and then it got out of hand and he just ended up starting a religion. But like speaking of Christopher Smith, um, yeah, the original intention was to achieve the gold plates or to get the, you know, to get the alchemical gold or whatever. It, it wasn't to start a religion. That was the influence of other people that came in and influenced them to do that type of thing. Okay, so um, I don't want to mischaracterize you, but I'm trying to explain um, you to the audience who isn't listening. You seem to be influenced by, like, culture. I would say, like, psychedelic, like, rock music culture. I'm trying to think of a way (laughs) to to explain it to people. You've got a lot of mystical things, um, like, that you wear all the time and you create this art. And, uh, like, I'm looking at your room right now and... It just seems very congruent with like the psychedelic culture, if that's a culture. Does that make sense? Oh, yeah, I guess. I mean, I know with Joseph Smith ethnogen theories and things like that, we, we don't see those as theories per se. I, I stem to think that all, re, all religion stems to some type of psychedelic um, connection with plants or something like that i mean even the gnostic the gnostic christians and things um say that the that the cross is the mushroom and all that i guess i'm asking though does that did that larger culture larger american music culture influence like did you tie it in with mormonism does that make oh, sense yeah, what I'm probably. asking? Probably. This might be a good good place to kind of go into a revelation that I had when I was um, a teenager. This would have happened about 1986. And, and this becomes a, a order of amen t- tenant. It's that you have to deny the Holy Ghost in order to receive the Holy Ghost. And the, way, the reason I say that is that what, once you realize that there's certain endorphins and things that go around in your head. You can, you can actually have the Holy ghost um, just through meditative techniques, be able to um, command it almost at will or something like that. But I just remember having um, an experience where I was listening to the band XTC had a band called dear God. And it's, atheist anthem about why um why the they can't believe in god you are you familiar with that song at all no uh -uh. just wanted to read some of it because it's just really great okay okay you ready yeah dear god hope you got the letter and i pray you can make it better down here i don't need a big reduction in the price of beer But all the people that you made in your image, you see them starving on their feet because they can't get enough to eat from God. I can't believe in you. And it keeps on going on. um, I think one of the best parts, like, I won't believe in heaven or hell, no saints or sinners, no devil as well, no pearly gates, no thorny crown. 
You're always letting us humans down. The wars you bring, the babes you drown, those lost at sea and never found. And it's the same the whole world round. I hurt, I see, helps to compound. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost is just somebody's unholy hoax. And if you're up there, you'll perceive that my heart here upon my sleeve, if there's one thing I don't believe in, it's you, dear God. Hmm. When I heard that song, and if you listen to it, I swear, I think anybody would have this. I just got the strongest burning in my bosom. And I just got tingles. I'm, I have goosebumps just talking about it right now. And I just thought, you know, if here's an anthem for atheism, and I felt the Holy Ghost stronger here than I ever have in church or in anything. And I just realized it's just, it's just endorphins in your head or, <laughs> you know, it's just a flood, flood of good feelings. Anybody can feel that bosom or the, that bosom and um, the burning in your bosom. And it just made me realize things where if a spirit's telling, um, telling Nephi to cut off Laban's head, or if, uh, or if you have some spirit that tells you you should kill your son or something, that's just a really dangerous message. And I just don't think that oh, that's what ends up happening with all these fundamentalist groups um, that end up going out and killing their families and things. It's just, it's just so wrong. And So this is what makes you unique to me. Of all of the prophets self-proclaimed or otherwise in Mormonism, you're atheist and you don't follow the religious tenets, but you follow the magical ones, which is such a unique way to live out Mormonism. But certainly uh, one could argue a valid way if, if the religious art, you know, tenets are seen as one way to interpret Mormonism and the cultural are another way, and the magical as another way, and the symbols as another way. So tell us about the Order of Amun now. Is it something you founded, or is it something you're a part of? Yeah, it's something I'm a part of. We, we really think that all Mormons are Order of Amun. That's the original tree. So everything that's Mormon is a branch of the Order of Amen. My particular branch is called the Latter-day or Order of Amen. And it's like, it's just a whole separate branch. And that's where I could start getting more into, you know, maybe type of dogmas and things that we, we believe. But Well, just give me a basic history of the group. If you were explaining what Order of Amen was to anyone, just generally speaking, what would you say? Okay, the Order of Amen is the original magical thread of Mormonism. My, my connection is through the ancestral, historical, and magical and hermetic traditions of my heritage. My ancestors have been living, um, have been having magical battles with the Smith family from the very beginning, and it has always existed. It's existed before Mormonism was a religion, and we are not a religion. Okay, so you're not a religion. What would you say that you are? Uh, we, we say a guild, which 
with all the different branches in a guild is being able to actually solder ourselves together. So better magical guilds, you know, ma- ma- magical guilds have existed since the beginning of time and with shamanism and all of that. So, I mean, we could go back historically, I would say Order of Amen goes back to the magical guilds that, uh, that Joseph Smith was involved in. If you want to go back speculatively, um, I guess hanging out with Neanderthals and things like that. (laughs) Because it's not a term that's, you know, many Mormons are familiar with. Traditionally speaking, a guild is some sort of group of artisans or, you know, people that have a special craft that get together and have like a practice or like a union almost. Is Mm -hmm. that accurate to say? Yes. So it's like an association, if you will. Um, yeah, I guess one way to put it is that, you know, what um, Lucy Smith talked about this with Joseph Smith, um, how they never disbanded laboring in the faculties of Abarak. And the Abarak are, are, is that magical thread, and it's also related to Gnosticism. And so we consider ourselves Gnostic Mormons, and as well as anarcho-Mormons, of course, but um, Gnosticism turns everything up on its head. So when you have most, most often what's countered in the outer circle as people's heroes are our villains and the villains are our heroes. And so we, if we trace ourselves, let's say back to, um, a story like the garden of Eden, we consider ourselves in that scenario, the other ones. We're Lilith that goes away from Adam because she was equal to Adam. She starts her own group over here. We're that group. We don't have original sin. We, don't, we have not fallen with Adam and Eve because we never even had partook of the fruit or anything. Cain caught up with us later on when he gave a bloodthirsty God fruits and vegetables and he kicked him out of the garden for it. All right. I mean, he kicked him out of there and made him go east of Eden up to the city of Enoch for that stuff. That's where we come from on a metaphorical type of basis. So, so you guys take the same stories, the same scripture, the same theology, and then reinterpret it through sort of a mystical lens. So would it be fair to say that you are sort of, a mystical arm of Mormonism like Kabbalah is for Judaism or um, Sufism for um, Islamic stuff. Oh yeah, definitely. That's our thread. That's us. So you guys are the mystical branch of Mormonism. We have discovered that it exists. Uh, How, when you say we, do you have numbers? I mean, everyone always wants to know how big it is. Yeah, so um, we boast some really big numbers, and I say that because all, all humans have our heavenly parent, and so we we really think that all humans are part of the part of this group. So yeah, we have the largest numbers ever. Plus, <laughs> um, all of, all of our members are prophets, so I can go on. Um, I think. I think at this point, um, we should probably actually 
um, or ordain the listeners so they can start their own branches. I did not know we were going to ordain people. This is exciting. Yeah. <laughs> you know, we've, we, these are, we do take one-ups from the LDS sometimes, and we're <laughs> extremely contemporary. And so, you know, if they can do an endowment um, rituals on a video screen, we can do um, ordinations over the, the ether waves. So do listeners need to, like, do we need to go bathe first? Do we need to, like, take our hats off? Yeah, we... If someone does want to do a washing and anointing on their own time, that's fine. But it, this is your birthright. You don't even really need to be ordained this. It's actually a birthright. But it's always fun to have it actually, like, tangible thing happen, you know? So if you're driving or if you're at work or something, you can... Um, you can skip this first part. Close your eyes as if you are asleep. By the power of the Islamic priesthood and through the promptings of the Holy Spirit and her powers, you are now ordained prophet, seer, and revelator in the order of Amen. You are now proclaimed one mighty and strong, Barak Ghazalem Ali, laboring in the faculties of Abarak. I say these things in the name of Amen, Christ Amen, Christ Amen, and Amen. Wow, that's beautiful. Did you did you write that? Where do you get the language from? Oh, it's I mean, that's just priesthood ordinations. Most of that stuff, I mean. It's pretty self-explanatory, isn't it? So um, I'm still trying to understand, you know, Mormonism has been disrupted for me so many times doing this podcast, but I have to say it's hard for me to wrap my brain around it. And I'll just share the story and I, I don't think that they'll mind, but I introduced you to John Hamer and Christopher Smith at Sunstone and we were showing them the plates and everything. And at one point, I think it was Christopher Smith that said something like, are you trolling us right now? Are you like, <laughs> do you remember that moment? Yeah, I, um, it might have been John too. I think he was just saying, uh, you know, this, he, he was looking at, we have an endowment tarot. That's the tarot of endowment and it's actual initiation um, where someone can self-initiate themselves through the endowment. Um, and he was looking at those and there's, there's some things in there. I, I think what he was thinking is um, during the, when Adam and Eve are kicked out of the garden, I have a, a whole collage of where the animals are battling it out and shooting each other with laser beams. And it's like this giant war, terrestrial kingdom war or whatever. And he's like, is this serious? Or are you joking? And it's like, no, we're like really we're serious. Yeah, that was a great moment. Um, and, and so again, I think we're saying that too, because this is so far out of the realm of what people would understand Mormonism to be, but I really do like it explained as this mystical thing. Um, I have to go back to the, the numbers thing one more time. So you, you said that it belongs to everybody, but are there other people that you actually practice some of these things with? Yeah. So most of those are just our other branches i could go go over some of them they're pretty 
a lot of them are pretty interesting. Yeah, so, give us give us a few just so we can sort of wrap our heads around what this yeah, is and like. That's going to help everyone that's just been ordained to be able to establish their branches too. In fact, um, I, I, if I remember right, wasn't your branch the um, the triad of evil? Yeah, that is mine. <laughs> <laughs> But if I joined, if I joined your branch, you'd have to be the quadrat of evil. Or yeah, it gets really complicated, but that's why we're an exclusive branch, so we can keep our letter count down. Yeah, Mormonism has a proud history in feminism with the suffrage movement and all that stuff. Oh. So, LOA branches. Um, there's the GBBS, that's the Great Black Brotherhood of Sever Severity. They're interesting because they consider themselves um, sons of perdition. But um, they actually, this was, this was crazy. This was back with the Gordon B. Hinckley days. They actually put a um, black magic curse on Gordon B. Hinckley and actually claimed to put the nail in his coffin. Um, actually put like a a black magic hit on his head and then proclaimed that, um, that Thomas S. Monson would be the next president of the LDS church. And it all came true. Oh my gosh. In fact, it was so crazy because the curse was actually put up on a, um, a video curse online and it was, it was actually titled um, Gordon B is dead. And as soon as he died, this was back in, um, at, the, at a time when if someone actually went online and and look, and like googled that in it's the first thing that came up so that that video actually got 60 hits overnight some 60,000 hits overnight um yeah also, and I can I can link to the video I saw it online yeah I'll put up some connections to that stuff these are branches I don't really claim to be involved with some of this stuff it's pretty out there um, there's also the DM, DDMC, which is the Discordic Discord Disorder of the Mad Cow, and they also claim to have done the same thing to um, to Thomas S. Monson. Um, their big thing is since they're the cult of the Mad Cow is to turn your um, brain into Swiss cheese, and they actually th see um, Thomas S. Monson as um, as a lizard vampire overlord or something so these are people that actually crazy. take mormon tenants infuse magical elements uh ritual and probably like i don't know um atheist yeah. like everybody has their own flavor you know so like mine's the latter-day order of amen we also call ourselves the guild of the firstborn and the bornless one um there's a group down in Utah County called the Liberated, the Liberated Daughters of Son Amen, or the New Daughters of Dan, and um, they are actually related to Dan Jones, that was um, part of the, uh, oh, just during Carthage and stuff like that. <laughs> okay, so let's um, let's talk about your order then. Did you found your own order, and how do all of these different branches connect with each other? Oh, just the the order of Amen. We really just say that all Mormons are part of our branch. In fact, the only the only people that we don't consider part of us any longer is the is the LDS. We've they're just such a 
decrepit branch. We've cut them off altogether. And so, I don't know. It's, I don't know if that answers what you asked. Well, it, does Order Ramen have a history? If I were to write out a linear history of from Sally Chase till now, is there people that have always been practicing these mystical elements and infusing them with Mormonism? Or did you guys sort of excavate these in the 80s and 90s from um, the magic that you had learned about a century before? Oh, it's it's both. My connection through it is is actually through um, it's actually through going through the historical um, and ancestral narrative, and that and I think that's where most people, once they start to actually trace it back or look into it in their own lives, will be able to make those connections. But um, yeah, speculatively, I feel and think that it's all been passed down. Um, to me, um, I don't know. I I, t- I tend to take. Oh, I'm going to go off off the rails a little bit on this thing, but um, a lot of it is. I like I like to think of a Socratic method on things and saying when you say that I feel something or I believe it, or to say how or why or why do you think those things. But I would I would just say. Um, most of that for me and with my connection is through some type of um, genetic memory or necromancy or something like that. And that's coming from someone that I honestly am a skeptic. I don't believe in anything, but I'm willing to um, experiment with these things and see where they take me. I don't think that it's like a absolute or anything like that. But um, yeah, that's where I would trace my my personal connection with the OA, I think that would just, you know, each, each person's going to have a different. So how did you even find the OA when you were sort of out wandering for your own truths? How did you find and connect with this group? Um, just, just through interacting with magical guilds. It's just like, seriously, I guess you could see it, how the Kabbalah is where things are p- passed down, um, verbally or metaphorically through symbols and things like that, that, um, you know, once I involved myself with magic, then it all just fell into place. You have this guild, you start your own branch. Um, tell us about your branch as, as best you can. I know you're not a religion, but tell us about the cosmology. Is there a core belief system, tenants, um, practices, rituals that people have to adopt? Oh, I mean, not really. It's mostly just self-initiatory. Um, we do have tools to be able to use for those um, initiations. Like, let's say um, we believe that a temple isn't like a physical building that you have to build. Your body is a temple. We also have certain body of light um, meditations that you can do in order to um, charge your garment we don't believe you need to have a physical talisman as the garment it's actually a meditation to build a body of light um so yeah there's different techniques and things we have i'm um we're putting together some different um just like little help you manuals and things to be able to work with these type of things but yeah i mean we have some of our main things is we're polyamorous we have priesthood for men and women and everyone in between 
I don't know. We can link, we can maybe link that video up. The it actually is it's with from an LDS branch, um, a LOA branch, but it it's kind of like a play off the fourteen articles of faith. You, did you see that? Yeah, I I yeah, I did. I can link that too. The biggest thing with that that go that I would be differential with is it says we believe, and I would say it would it would probably be more titled we think. But it kind of gives an outline of some of the ideas and concepts. Um, a lot of it's a Gnostic ideas. So, like we we do agree with the LDS that um, Yahweh and Jesus are the same person, and but the difference is is that we think that um, Yahweh, the Creator deity, was a deranged demiurge um, named Samal, the blind one, and that. His, that his whole that his creation was a derangement, and that's what we're like trying to elevate ourselves past and over. And that's what the true true connection with Christ is: is being able to overturn those derangements that supposedly the demiurge created. I don't know. We really really have a lot of um, connections with Gnosticism and and see Gnostic scripture as scripture. But I mean, the thing with scripture and with, and Joseph Smith said this too, is that all inspired works are apocryphal. And so we just have a big, huge canon of apocryphal works. I mean, we even consider like um, Trent Harris's plan 10 from outer space and apocryphal scripture. So what would you say to people who are listening now that think that this is, too out there or even silly or that you are sort of making a mockery of Mormonism? I'd say the people that are making a mockery of Mormonism, the LDS, they don't even want to be connected with it. And they've just turned it into such just a gross, horrible thing that just pretends to accept others, but really is just taking advantage of others. So I would just say, yeah, we, we are really out there and we are extremists and yeah, if you don't like it, then that's fine. Go do your own thing. (laughs) So in the order of Amen, there's not like Danites or avenging angels are there. Oh no. In fact, um, we're just the opposite of that. That's what I was trying to say with um, being able to tune with the, um, the spirit and things is, you know, anything, anything that tells you that, that you can kill someone else or take advantage of someone else is just the opposite of what we're about. We're total humanists. And yeah, I just, I'm just so against any of that stuff. So let's talk about that then, because one of the things we were going to talk about, so it's relevant to this podcast, is polygamy and polyamory. So I want to hear your personal beliefs on Joseph Smith's polygamy in a minute, because we sort of talked about that before. But your group has um, polyamorous connections amongst the, I'm trying to think, not believers or followers, adherents, what would you call, what would you call them? Yeah, adherents or something, I don't know. (laughs) So I don't really put titles on. So you get, what does it look like? You get together and you perform rituals or do you um, speculate on theology or meaning? What what do you do when you're together with other people? Yeah, there can be pra- um, practical aspects to it and things. Um, I didn't 
ordination over here not, not too long ago where uh, we drew a magical circle and sealed off the the quarters and then did an actual ordination and then so i mean there there are there are actual practical type of applications but it's not again that's just dependent on what branch or who what you're involved and, in and what does that do for you um and again, I, I apologize because I, I know that I'm still thinking about this in a very LDS way. Like I need to know the structure. I need to know the beliefs. I need to know how it works, right? Mm -hmm. um, but if you are giving an ordination to someone, I've talked to, I've talked to many people like the community of Christ will still give blessings to people. I know some Mormons that will still give blessings to people who are excommunicated because it's, or people that don't even believe in God because it's a way for them to still connect with that heritage. What does an ordination do for you and the person who's being ordained? What, what do you get out of that? Especially if you don't believe in God. Yeah. I think mostly it's just kind of a, a form of meditative, um, a form of action, meditative action. And so for the most part, um, it's just bringing like a creative spiritual thing into reality and then being able to use that as a form of um, meditation that, yeah, I don't know. I don't, I don't know. Some people it might help. Some people, I don't think it really does. So I, I don't think you really need that, but for like this person that I gave the ordination to, um, she's, she seemed to really feel that that would empower her to be able to move on and, and do the things that she, she wants to do to ordain other people and, and actually bring it into a physical aspect where my concept and what I was trying to explain to her is that it's a birthright. You already have that. It's not so much that I have to empower you. You already have that empowerment. But at the same time, when you have like a talismanic type of physical thing that you want to charge or put something on to give it more meaning, if that gives you more meaning then and helps you out, then all the more better. But yeah, I don't so think that. So why use Mormon language, though? Why not just, you know, use something from a Gnostic tradition or from secularism or any of these other magical guilds? Why Mormonism? Um, just... For me, it's because it's my ethnicity. That's my eth ethnicity. That's where I come from. And so that's my par paradigm. That's why I've, with other branches of OA, they might not even necessarily feel like they have um, necessarily a Mormon connection. Like, let's say somebody that ha doesn't, that goes and looks into their ancestry and doesn't even have any Mormonism. Go back and find out what you're what your traditions were, what the religious beliefs were, were at the time. I mean, especially if you can look at things metaphorically and things, if you find out you have a lot of European ancestry or, or North European and you worship Thor and those things, I think it's important to go back and to find out how people were influenced, why that influenced your culture, because it's part of your genetics and it's just part of you. I don't believe that, you know, they're just stories and mythology, but they can just enrich you um, through being able to look into their, their, the stories and the mythologies and the symbols of that just enriches humans, I think. But I don't think, I don't think that there's necessarily truth behind any of that. But this paradigm is what works 
the best for me. And I think a lot of other people that, that have Mormon backgrounds and are searching for something, it's like, I think that's why maybe just like Denver snuffer and people like that. And, and you had asked me if I was a, a snuffer, right? And um, I think where you were, were vibing off that is being able to have a personal connection with Christ. I mean, in a in more of a hermetical sense, we believe that too, but we just think that your connection with Christ is being able to connect with your your higher self or those aspects of your holy guardian angel or to connect with um, who you're who you would imagine to be your ultimate human or something, you know, if I could be the ultimate human, who would that be? And I think those are aspirations that are important for humans to have in order to try to better themselves. Okay. So that's a good segue into what I want to talk about now, which is your art and your tarot. And someday I got to have you read my tarot. I think that'd be really cool, but okay, (laughs) no, really. I like that. Um, but tell us about your art. Tell us about the copper plates. Do you have anything you can show the video? Oh yeah. I could probably dig up some of the copper plates. If I run up the hill, get them out of their stone vault. So you'll have to verbally explain these two for listeners. Yeah, this is just a front page. So we're looking, it's a copper, almost postcard size, and there's engravings in, in the copper. What do the engravings mean? Oh, these are the pure language. If you look at the character manuscript that, um, that I don't know, you've seen it, right? It's like the Ant- Anton transcript or whatever. It's not, or supposedly a copy of the Anton transcript. But those same letters that are on there, on here. So you're even taking symbology that Mark Hoffman would have used. Oh, no, this isn't Mark Hoffman's. This is the character transcript that was actually, um, I think they called it like the eight ancestries from Adam or something like that. This is like Quetzalcoatl or the... Yahweh or the Demiurge. You could kind of see it. Maybe yeah, so there's the like, there, for those who aren't listening, head. yeah, it's kind of like a dragon scales. What this do you is d- kind of a prophecy of Enzyme Peak and things like that. Oh, that's beautiful. What What is the prophecy? Oh, that just that, that that's how the, the copper plates would be found because they were found up, up there. There's a cave under Enzyme Peak. It's kind of a creepy cave. That's where, like, um, that manual dude married Elizabeth Smart up there. Oh, I didn't realize that. Yeah. Yeah, keep showing us that, and then I well, want to see some of your art. I was just going to say with the Ensign Peak that, um, yeah, it's just like a major LOA site. But they used to, um, the LDS even used to go up there and have in, their endowments and stuff taken out. And they do prayer circles and all the paleos and stuff up there. And so if you can't get in the temple and you're all bummed out about it, just go hike up to Enzyme Peak. They used to do all that stuff up there. Can you imagine, like, look like a whole bunch of druids up there all dressed in white? And That's actually a beautiful idea to think about. What is this one we're looking at? Oh, yeah. So this is interesting. This, this prophesies about um, the seer stones and so... Let's see. This is the white stone down here. This is the stone in um, Willard Chase's stone. This is the well. 
but it all talks, it's a prophecy talking about the whole scenario of what happened between the magical guilds and the wars. We've been battling with the Smiths, the Smiths ever since the beginning. It's like a big magical battle. And what is this one? Oh, this is, this is actually, it's hard to explain. I'm going to have, I haven't translated a lot of this stuff. Yeah, this is, this is more like, it's kind of, I guess it could be looked at as a battle between good and evil of sorts, like a yin and yang, because you have like the, the dark side and then the, the light side or whatever. Now talk to us about your music that you create, because you also create music. Oh yeah, but for me, I'm involved with, I'm in at least 12, 12 different bands and things. So I guess with the magical aspect that we have like a psychedelic magical band called the Phantasmagorical Powerhouse of Aberak. Um, that is quite a name. That's hard to fit on a CD. <laughs> it is. Um, but yeah, that's probably, we do soundtracks to different Mormony kind of things. I'll, if they go to the youtube.com Mormon magic, I have some of that stuff up on there. Okay, and um, before I let you go, I also wanted to ask you about your podcast because you said that you were starting or had started a podcast. Yeah, um, we call them um, audio revelations, I guess, but it's called Mystical Magical Mormon, the Mystical Magical Mormon Expositor, or Triple MX. But I think the main, main point of it is to be able to answer more of the questions like you had and kind of ex- explain what this whole movement is about. Yeah. Okay. So what would you want to tell people who want to know more or they find some sort of connection with this? How do they, how do they find you? Cause I got to say, I mean, you're on YouTube, but it's not like you guys have a webpage or a place that I could easily find. Yeah. And even that, the YouTube stuff and things, those, those are mostly branches and things that I'm not necessarily affiliated with. Um, we don't have really a big web presence at all. In fact, um, just the fact that we're even coming out about things is, is more recent. Um, we've just finally, you know, the LDS is coming out and saying that they're being more transparent, but we're just here to show them how transparent they're really not being. And, um, we really believe nothing is secret, nothing is sacred, and we're here to expose all of this stuff. And so I think the best way to maybe just contact me at this point, and I don't know how long this would last, but um, if you look up on uh, Gazela Mali, G-A-Z-E-L-A-M, Gazelam Ali, and look it up on um, Facebook, then you can track me down there. So I'll link to your Facebook uh, page. Yeah, that's cool. And I mean, I'll, I'll know if you're not a faker because, I mean, I, I mostly on there just only hang out with Mormon circles and stuff. So, Do you get a lot of pushback from uh, Mormons, other Mormons who don't understand? Yeah, ac- across the board, and it's not even just other Mormons. I've had, I've, I've had um, Mormon historians that have come down on me. Um, one guy who we actually talked about tonight, but I'm not going to mention his name. <laughs> when when you put up my plate, it was either you or Chris put up my plates on um, Facebook, and he's like, he should have a more honest way of trying to get attention. And I was like, well, what's not honest about it? Because it said straight up that those plates were 
tangible plates that I pulled out through the um, through the spiritual eye, and I consider the spiritual eye just like fantasy, right? I mean, and so <laughs> he was just like, I was like, well, why is this guy that's like this really big, well-known Mormon historian coming down on me about this stuff? It's just ridiculous that he'd take his time to put it up on a public forum and try to fight me about this kind of thing. Why do you think it makes people uncomfortable? I don't know. Another example is like, and and you and I know who he is, but I've had a a fundamentalist prophet that was actually giving me death threats and wanted to blood atone me and stuff. And it's like, hey, you know, if you think I'm not going to be saved, don't do me any favors. I don't need to be saved through your blood atonement or something, you know? And so it's like, just, it just gets really scary out Keep there. your blood atonement to yourself. Yeah, keep your blood atonement to yourself. Like, I don't need to be saved. If, if, that, if that was it and you wanted everybody to be saved. Yeah, it's a kind of a dark doctrine. Yeah, that, we're just so against any of that stuff, so... Yeah, so let's see. I wanted to throw out youtube.com forward slash Mormon Magic. It's M-O-R-M-O-N-M-A-G-I-C-K. You'll put links up to this stuff. YouTube.com forward slash baby bam bam bumpkin. Um, that stuff's really crazy. I haven't had contact with her in a long time, but she's like a hermaphrodite baby that puts up Mormon documentaries and then has a bunch of music videos and stuff too. That's B-A-B-Y-B-A-M-B-A-M-B-U-M-K-I-N. No P in there for bumpkin. It's bumpkin. Um, And then we also have a branch um, called Mormon Zodiac. You may have seen that stuff up there. It's kind of fun. They have more of a um, practical type of application. Some of it seems can seem kind of tongue-in-cheek, but... Yeah, we don't have any opposition to that. Stuff. Is is some of it tongue in cheek? Is some of it for attention or just to be different? I mean, is there any truth to that? Um, yeah, because I think you, that's the only way to find truth is in being able to be lighthearted and joke about it. You get all stu- stuffy like the LDS are, and you're just trying to hide stuff and things. We're not hiding anything. Okay, yeah, that that's an interesting way to frame it. Um, is there anything else you want listeners to know before I let you go? Oh, no, just like, I mean, I, re- I just really love all your podcasts and stuff. I'm just excited to be on here and I hope it tra- I can put some sense to it. I know it's just a lot to take in and I tend to babble and babble. No, this is, this is good. And I think that it's, given me some clarification too. So um, I'm sure people will see you around at Salt Lake events and things like that. Yeah, I'm trying to get out there and meet more people involved with it. It just gets kind of scary. I'll find you. You don't come find me. That sounds a little creepy. So (laughs) maybe... (laughs) What? I'm coming for you. Oh, I'm... (laughs) I got to say, you are the most kind-hearted, hippie-esque person i've met so oh thanks Lindsay. yeah and now he's blushing like a like someone really dangerous would blush so getting all red right through my mask okay well thanks gazalem for coming on and explaining and we'll make uh all those links nice thanks for having me
sure to support Utah women making local music. If you like the music on this podcast, it comes from a band called Lady Murasaki. You can check them out at ladymurasaki.bandcamp.com.